So what we're going to do uh, this week, as we have been doing for a long time, is there's going to be a scripture for us to memorize. It's something for our brain, something for our heart. We're going to, uh, to learn how to pray the kinds of things that we're studying about, not just to have the same old, same old kind of prayer, but to have a developing prayer life, a maturing prayer life in which we are actually talking to God as a father and knowing that in that relationship of talking to God uh, as our father, that we are, he is listening to us as we are his children. And that's the prayer part of it and some instructions there with what to do. And then the glorify section is something practical to do. Sometimes it's an actual activity. Sometimes it's some questions, some things to consider, to get your mind around, to to meditate on, to contemplate on, and to make a real part of the way that you live in the kingdom of God. And we're going to continue our study. The passage that Alex just read is in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to continue our study of the, 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 the one parable that is made up of three parts, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. Uh, One of the things I think we all learn at an early age is that everyone, everywhere, every day divides the world up and separates the world up into the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, the insiders and the outsiders, the up-and-comings and the down-and-outs, the cool kids and the not-so-cool kids, the the smart and the not-so-smart, the beautiful and the not-so-beautiful, the safe and the dangerous, winners and losers, acceptable and unacceptable, desirable and undesirable, the us and the them. And if that kind of, of thinking about the humans is not bad enough, the humans do all they can to keep the ones they think that are the have-nots and the outsiders, the safe, the dangerous, the down-and-outs, the losers, the, the unacceptables, the undesirables, and the thems separate at all costs. You know what I'm talking about, right? That there's always going to be a no-fly zone maintained between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, just an example of this, I mean, have you ever gotten on the bad side of the mean girls? This is why the church is a community like no other. The church is different. The gospel teaches as a truth that all humans are lost, that all humans are broken, that all humans are irreparable, at least by our own hands. That there is no one who is cool, there is no one that has it together or has the inside track in God's eyes. But, and here's the difference, the difference between God and the humans is that God invites everyone to come into his presence, to come into his family, to come into his kingdom. In other words, to come into his love, to come into his grace, and to come into his joy. And this is what we see in Jesus' ministry when he was on earth 2,000 years ago, that he is a part of, of, of God's human project. And as a part of God's human project, Jesus is building a community of grace that welcomes all. That's what God is doing through Christ Jesus. That's what God is doing through the gospel, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, that he is building a community of grace that welcomes all. So one day... Jesus is talking and eating with some folks, and it created a little bit of tension. 
And we read this in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And we understand that they're probably also kind of eating with each other, having a meal, uh, maybe coffee. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did what? They did what? They muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, a fellow by the name of Kenneth Bailey, who was a Bible teacher for a lot of decades and an expert in the Middle East, he writes this in his book, Poet and Peasant. In the East today, as in the past, a nobleman may feed any number of lesser needy persons as a sign of his generosity, but he does not eat with them. However, when guests are received, the one receiving the guest eats with them. The meal is a special sign of acceptance. What Kenneth Bailey is explaining to us is that during the time of Jesus, even to this day, that, you know, if you're a nobleman, there's a lot of people that you might feed, but you would never eat with them. When you sat down at the table and you ate with them, you were accepting them. You were saying that we are equal, we have the same worldview, that we have the same value system, that we look on life the same way. And this is why they're muttering. The receiving and the accepting by Jesus of the thems is what prompts the muttering of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, which in turn triggers the telling of Jesus' most famous parable, parable that has the three parts, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons. And Jesus, in telling this parable, is saying to those that are muttering that this is what God the Father is really like. This is what God the Father is really like, and this is why I treat everyone the way that I do. So one of the things that Jesus is kind of communicating as he's eating and, and visiting and spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners is that God is building this community of grace that welcomes all. And to do that, for us to do that even in our own lifetime, what we need to do is to trade the muttering for the mind of Christ. We need to trade the muttering for the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ, which is a, a, a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16, means adopting the narratives of Jesus on key issues like the character and the nature of God the Father in all the universe. To understand what God is really like how he feels about the humans, which is the second part. To understand, to have the mind of Christ is to understand the worth of a human being as they are made in the image of God. So it's to understand God the Father in his reality, is to understand the worth of the human beings as they are made in the image of God, and then finally to understand the present reality of the kingdom of God, what it is that God is doing in the world through Jesus. And because the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law are not getting it, Jesus tells a story. The third part of the story goes like this. There's a, a man, a, a patriarch in the village. He has two sons. And one day, the younger son does the most unthinkable thing ever imagined. The younger son asks for the inheritance while the father is still alive. That is a great insult. Basically, the younger son is going up to the father and saying, you know, I really would like to have the inheritance. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm sorry if you think that means I wish you were dead. But if that's the way you take it, that's okay. Can I have my share of the inheritance? 
I would like to put a little distance between you and me. I would like to have my inheritance while I have a little pizzazz left in life to be able to enjoy it. And we're not told the reason why. But the father does this. And he divides the inheritance between the two sons. And the younger son, with a third of the estate, goes off into a far land. He does indeed put distance between him and home. And he squanders the inheritance. He squanders all of the money. And he ends up kind of down and out and a have-not. I mean, he's this good Jewish boy from a good Jewish home, and now he's down messing with the pigs and wishing he could eat the food that the pigs are eating. He is starving to death. And that's when he comes to his senses and he realizes that I made a, a huge mistake with my life. I have really messed up. I've missed the boat on this. I can't believe I did what I did. And he decides to go back to the house. The big question in his mind, now imagine that Jesus is telling this story. And the story that Jesus has told so far is really kind of astonishing and outlandish. It's startling to all of the people that are listening to it. And they're all kind of on the edge of their seats as they're listening to Jesus tell this story. And they have a big question in their mind as this boy that has greatly insulted his father has decided because he squandered all of this money and he's down and out, he's a have-not, that he's going to go back home. The big question is going to be this. What kind of father will he encounter back at the house? What kind of father will he find back home? And Jesus describes this father in three ways. And it's really kind of the heart of the text. There is a forgiveness for the past, a restoration for the present, and hope for the future. Let's begin with forgiveness for the past. I mean, it's not just Middle East, the ancient Mediterranean world. Think about it even today. If you're a typical father and your son has done this, and you see your son who has taken a third of the family fortune, and he has blown in on wine and women and song, and he's coming down the road, and you're out on the front porch and you see it, what are you going to think? Your boy that has really messed up and for all intents and purposes has burned the bridge back home, what are you going to think? Well, Sonny Boy Jr. must have really learned his lesson. Probably not. It's probably... If this kid has learned his lesson and he's ready to fly right, then maybe, just maybe, I'll let him up here on the front porch. I'll hear what he has to say. Probably not. More likely, it's Sonny Boy Jr. is coming back for more money. That is what a typical father is probably going to think. But notice what Jesus says in verse 20. This is so startling. I mean, when Jesus tells this, and they hear and comprehend what he's saying, their jaws drop on the ground. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He's far off, and, and the father is scanning the horizon for his son. And he sees him, and he was filled with compassion. He was filled with compassion, and he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And he kissed him. 
This is so unexpected. This is, this is so startling. It is such astonishing behavior on the part of a Middle Eastern patriarch. His, his running is undignified. If you are a, a man of standing in the community, in the Middle Eastern world, even to this day, running is undignified. You run to no one. You go to no one. They come to you. And you never run. In fact, uh, Kenneth Bailey in his book, you know, Poet and Peasant, talks about how uh, one of the guys he was talking to about this very passage said that he was really upset with his preacher because he saw his preacher walking too fast through the market. I want you to know that I'm a fast walker. It's just in my DNA. It's not undignified. It's just who I am. But this is just so undignified in the mind of all of these people that, that hear Jesus say, this is what this patriarch is doing. So why is he running? Why is he willing to be undignified in front of his family and village? It is to show not just the boy, but everyone in the village that this boy is forgiven. Now, one of the things that happens in Middle Eastern culture, in, Israeli, in, in Israelite culture during this period of time, is this little thing that we call in Hebrew, ketzazah. Hey, would you like to say that? Let's say it together. Kedzadza. Let's say it again. Kedzadza. I don't want you to forget it because it's an integral part of the story and it was understood by the villagers that are listening to this. Everybody in the village would have known what this boy did. The, the, the boy would not just have disappeared and, and there would have been the rumors throughout the, the marketplace of this boy taking all of the solid goods, the commodities, and turning it into cash and then just disappearing without people knowing that he has insulted the Father. Everybody in the village knew what was going on. And Jesus knows that all of his listeners understand this. And one of the things that would have been a part of, of village life is that when this boy, and it's not just this boy, but anybody that would have have disdained and disgraced and insulted their family in such a way with no remorse and would have just gone off and done what this boy would have done, they would, as he returned, would have gathered out and he would have had to run a gauntlet. And in running that gauntlet, and I'm using it metaphorically, he would have walked through the village, and as he walked through the village back to his house, the villagers would come out with full knowledge of what he had done, and, 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 and the rotten thing that he had done to his father, and they would have hurled insults at him, and perhaps it would have gotten even physical, but they would have said out loud, you are cut off. You are cut off. And they would have hurled insults with him, at him, and they would basically have communicated to this boy that he is dead to them. Now before this happens, the father runs through the village to the boy and tackles him and kisses him as a sign that the boy is accepted. And notice that he does this. He is offering forgiveness before the boy even asks for it. How is this even possible? How is, is this even possible? Typical father would have been clobbering the boy in his heart the whole time. And then when he had the opportunity in person, he would have clobbered him 
when he got home. So what had the father been doing all that time? The father ran and kissed that son because he had been kissing him in his heart every day since he had left home. The father had been kissing that boy in his heart every day so that when the boy returned, he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him And the whole village would have gotten the message. The message is this. All is forgiven. Welcome home. All is forgiven. Welcome home. This is how Jesus describes this astonishing father in Luke chapter 15. And in so doing, it tells us much about the mind of Christ. This is how Christ sees the character of God. This is how Jesus sees the character and the nature of God who is our Father. And it tells us much about how God and Christ see the worth of a human being even one who has been a have and has turned himself into a have-not. It tells us much about the present reality of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God doing today? It is restoration in the present. He is making us sons and daughters. In verse 22, you know, the son wants to get up. He's got sort of this rehearsed, thing he wants to say to the father i've sinned against you have sinned against heaven true i'm not worthy to be your son probably true you know make me like a heart you know he's rehearsed all of this right and before he can even get it all out the father interrupts him and he says to all of the you know the servants that have come down you know when when the master you know the patriarch is running down the street you follow him to make sure you know he's not going to hurt himself they're there too and the boy is trying to get all this stuff out and the father says quick Bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. My son was dead, and he's alive. My son was dead, and is alive again. My boy was lost, and now he's found. So they begin to celebrate. You know this kid, he's, <laughs> he's such a human, right? He's such a human. He thinks that he can work his way back into the family. You know, make me like a hired man. You know, he's basically saying to the father, you don't have to, you know, treat me like a son. I don't have to live on the property. Treat me like a hired person. I'll live someplace else. I'll pay you back. The father will have none of it. The father will have none of it. 
because he's going to restore sonship to the son. You're not going to be, you're not just, you're, you're not going to work your way back and earn it back. I'm going to make you my son again. The best robe would have been whose robe? The father's robe. The father is taking his robe and putting it on the lost son, the dead son, that's now the alive son and now the found son. The ring meant that he could represent the family again in business matters. The fatted calf was the celebration for the entire village. It was, it was basically a way for the father to say that this is the best day of my life. My son that was dead is now alive. My son that was lost is now found. My son is home and we're going to celebrate. And that is something that we see happen all the time in the kingdom of God, in the work of the church, even to this day. Remember the church that Jesus is building is a community of faith and it's a community of grace that is welcoming of all people. This is at the heart of who God is. It is at the heart of the worth of human beings. And it is at the very heart of what the kingdom of God is doing in the world today. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and in Romans chapter 8 that we are being made his children. Now, most of the modern translations, and, I, and to be honest with you, I don't have a, just a, a whole lot of issue with it. You know, the, all the gender stuff. But in this particular instance, I have a big problem with it because we miss the meaning of what Paul is trying to say when we make it uh, sort of gender neutral. When women, when the ladies in the time of Jesus in the Mediterranean world heard that when they became a disciple of Jesus, that God was making them a son, it was astonishing to them. What it meant is that they were being given all the rights of the kingdom, that they were being made God's children in the way that the sons were. And so Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, when the set time had fully come, God does send His Son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but, say it, God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you an heir. If you are His child, you receive all the blessings of God. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you know there's a lot of reasons why God the Father puts God the Spirit in you when you are baptized and you receive the forgiveness of your sins and you become His Son. He puts that Spirit in you for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that there are a lot of lies that the evil one is going to tell you about your identity. Remember, we talked about this earlier, that one of the ways that Satan attacks us is to attack us at the point of our identity. That's what he did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is out in the desert, he's been fasting, and he comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. 
The Spirit, one of the reasons the Spirit is in us is that the Spirit is testifying, is saying to us, is reminding us on a daily basis, you're a son, you're a son, you're a child of God, you're a child of God, you're a child of God. That's one of the things that the Spirit does, is to remind you on a daily basis that God is your Father, and because God is your Father, you are a child. And this is what gives us hope for the future. How was the restoration able to take place for this younger son? I mean, how is that even possible? How was the younger son reinstated into the family? How could the father actually offer forgiveness? I mean, think about what this kid did. He insulted the father, and unbelievably so. He created a scandal for the family. He took a third of the estate and just burned it up. It's Gonsville. And he put the family in financial straits. And if he is to be fully restored, the remaining wealth is going to have to be redistributed. Which means his restoration will be at the expense of the older brother. And quite frankly, church, this is why that older brother is so hacked off and refuses to even go into the party. But the good news is that our older brother, God the Son, Jesus, was willing to absorb all of our recklessness, all of our lostness, all our debt, all our brokenness. And he went through the crowd as they insulted him and mocked him and declared him cut off. He went through the crowd literally as they hurled insults at him. And our older brother was willing to not have a robe put on him, but to forfeit the glory he shared with God, even to be stripped naked on the cross. And instead of being clobbered by God, he took the clobbering that was meant for us. So that God, through Jesus, could fall on us, and kiss us on the cheek. Because of our older brother, Jesus, God can say to us, this son of mine was dead, but now he's found, he's alive again. These kids of mine were lost, but now they're found. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. And that, dear church, sounds like a resurrection. Let's stand and sing.